Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are talking about the latest from Pixar out on Disney Plus right now for all your quarantined viewing pleasure onward. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overgrove Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to discuss how onward might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Onward might help us understand the lectionary passages for Easter Sunday, April 12th, year A. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. So Adam, I am stuck in my house, and you are stuck in your house, and a lot of us are stuck in our houses, and... One of the consequences of that is Hollywood is having to rethink distribution strategy for some big properties, which is how Pixar's newest film, Onward, went straight from the theaters immediately into iTunes and right after that into our Disney Plus feeds. Onward comes from Pixar director Dan Scanlon, who previously did Monsters University, and it finds a couple of elven brothers living in a suburban world from which magic has largely disappeared. One day, the younger brother Ian gets a present from his long-dead father and an opportunity to bring his dad back to life just for one day. So we've got ourselves an adventure movie, but also very much a family movie about these two brothers, Tom Holland and Chris Pratt do the voices, Chris Pratt very much channeling the spirit of a young Jack Black. And we've got a movie about the hole that death has left behind in this family relationship. Adam, this didn't immediately jump to the top of my Pixar pantheon, but it does hit a lot of beats that are right up my alley, and I was surprisingly taken with it. How did the movie land for you, and how can Onward help us think about life in church theology and in the world? I quite love this movie. Um, I think, like you, it, it maybe doesn't have sort of the inventiveness or the sort of sheer ingenuity of the best of Pixar, but it's got such a big heart. And for me, it, it seems to be sort of created in the lab for all of the things that are meaningful in the way that I make meaning in my own life. Um, number one, I am the younger of two brothers. Um, and so the brother part of this was very, very important to me. Um, not to mention the fact that I have two young boys who are also brothers. And so the, the, the fact that I was watching this as a brother and as watching this as a father, um, made this especially poignant. Um, the other part of this is that um, my older brother died when I was 20 years old. Um, he was 24. And so the idea of like the hole that grief leaves when you um, don't get an opportunity to quite live a full life with somebody and you feel that longing. Um, and this, this movie has a, right, a lot of really tender moments that I think capture how grief operates, especially long after it's um, uh, the initial sting of the loss is there. Um, as you said, it's a, it's a movie that has a 
um, that talks about the holes that grief leave. And what is important for me and why this movie rang true is that those holes don't ever really get filled. Um, try as we might, they, they remain open. And I think that's as it should be. And that, that open hole turns us into a particular type of person. And so between these two characters, there's there's the older brother who had opportunity to spend time with his father, albeit a very as a very young child, and then the younger brother who had no opportunity to get to know his dad at all. And both of them are dealing with the hole that that um, that the death of their father has um, has left in their life, and the identities that they form um, in reaction to that hole are really interesting to me. So the older brother becomes someone who's sort of obsessed with becoming. Um, with, with the magic of the old, with trying to preserve the world as it once was, as someone who's trying to figure out how to capture what was lost or what is being lost. Meanwhile, the younger brother is trying to figure out how do you grow up in a world where you don't have this father figure who can teach you things that you want to know. Um, I think some of the sort of more poignant moments are when he's writing down in his list of things to do, like all the things that he wants to do with his dad. I think the other part of the movie that I was quite taken was, with was the ways in which the father is brought back, but only the bottom half of the father, where he um, is played for comedic effect, where they have to sort of lead the father around by a, a leash. Um, but even that had some tenderness to it and some thoughtfulness, in part because when you're thinking about grief and the ways in which your memories conjure up people, it almost always is conjuring up faces. And so you can't really have relationships or feel like someone is back if only their legs are back. You need the upper half of their torso in order to be back. I mean, I think Christy, my wife, and I watched this together, and she turned to me afterwards and said, um, you know, it's really hard to have a relationship with legs. Um, and that, as silly as sort of trite as it might sound, actually made a lot of sense in that moment about how, how necessary the upper half of a person is for the relationships that we build, but also how, how much faces and um, loom large in our memories, especially those memories that surround grief. So, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about the sort of theological import of this movie, about the ways in which hope operates, the ways in which our deep desire to be reunited with our loved ones, the way memory operates. But um, these were just my initial thoughts. How about you, Matt? I mean, as you watched it, what were the what were the initial impressions that stood out to you that made this movie worth watching? Yeah, one of the things that was interesting to me about this movie was that it's got it's playing a little bit of bait and switch with its protagonist because it's it's one of these films. I think about this through the lens of a film I've seen a thousand times, Shawshank Redemption, where yes. you have the Andy Dufresne as the protagonist, except in the last half hour, there's a reversal and you realize that the movie has been about Morgan Freeman's character the whole time. And, and, and I feel like Onward is doing a little bit of that, where it posits Ian, the younger brother, as the main character of this thing who needs to overcome certain obstacles to grow and, and kind of... Um, become more fully himself and, and a very typical kind of coming of age high school character plot arc about it's about learning confidence and it's about uh, learning how to do these life skills that his dad was supposed to teach him or that he somehow realize understands to be problematic because his dad is not there to teach it to him 
Um, although I think all teenagers struggle with some version of that, whether their parents are around or not. Um, well, we sense that the film is his journey. And then in the last half hour of this movie, I think it becomes his older brother Barley's journey. Mm. Because what you, what we learn, and here I, I'm, I'm spoiling some, but what we learn is that Barley really has unfinished business with his father um, that Ian doesn't have. Because Barley was old enough to have some semblance of relationship there that he is still turning and still wrestling with. And we get a sense that, in fact, Barley's life has been consumed by wrestling with that that grief, but also that regret about how he, who, who he was in those, those, those moments before uh, their father died. And so it be, the, the film operates around them, him having the opportunity to, to undo that, to atone for it, to apologize for it. It becomes a movie about forgiveness in a kind mm. of interesting way. Uh, but I'm not, I, I guess for me, what I struggled with is in that reversal, I'm not sure that I saw Barley grow and change in the way that I wanted him to for the arc of the film to work narratively. We certainly get Ian's growth and change. We see his renewed confidence in the epilogue of the film. We see him coming unto himself. Um, we see him embracing the kind of lore of magic that his brother has been circulating this whole time. I, I don't know that we see Barley coming into adulthood at the end in a way that I, I would really <laughs> like him to. And I don't know exactly what I'm asking for, but I, but it feels to me like yeah. there's a little bit of an unresolved thread that left me wanting. Uh, and, and, it, and, and it's wanting from a place of seeing the possibility of what this thing could do because it's working with such good material. Yeah. But I don't think it entirely nails it. That's, that's where I am. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think what we learn uh, two-thirds of the way into the movie is that Bartley, for all of his bluster and for his sort of overconfidence, both in himself and in his brother, I mean, which I think is one of the charming parts of this movie, yeah, is that... Sure that as an older brother he he never wavers in his sort of love and acceptance of his younger brother he's not a bully he's not aloof but um he has his own sets of situations but about two-thirds of the way into this movie you you learn that he has hidden shame in a way that was unexpected yeah and that hidden shame um is ultimately liberated by the end right i mean that's that's the indication that you get um but I think you're right to recognize, like, liberated to what? Right. Like, is the question. It is, it, I would say, a very poignant moment of liberation, of feeling like he's freed, that he gets to reconcile in a way that is deep and important. And that reconciliation is made possible by the sacrifice of both his brother and his mother at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and yet... We don't get the sense that this has liberated him into some new world where he wears freedom differently. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd like to see that. I, I think for me at this point, like I was just I was just so grateful to see that sort of that depiction of the ways in which shame and grief operate among each other. Yeah. 
I mean, and the way they're connected, I don't think we don't see that very often. And I thought that that was an astute part of this movie is that, um, that, that grief is laden with all sorts of shame. I mean, I feel it myself, I, I, especially at this time I, as a minister, and I don't know about you, but I get scared and I right now in, in our, in our own moment and I, and I grieve all of the situations I grieve for all of these people who are not getting to do the things that they want to do. I grieve for the people who are sick and I'm scared. And the, the, mm, I think what's going on. And I read a interesting interview in the Harvard business review with this guy who deals with grief saying like that feeling, that discomfort that you're feeling right now, that's grief. Everybody is feeling like a, a measure of grief and trauma right now. That is um, really hard to deal with and it's affecting us. And the grief that I feel affects me, it affects my body, it affects my mood. Um, we had a member die unexpectedly on Friday in, in our church and it just, it broke me. I felt so sad. Um, but what was very weird is that I felt like I could feel sad for that, but everything else around the church, I, I couldn't feel sad for that. I had to be optimistic, I had to be present, and I was sort of ashamed of my grief and letting other people see that I had grief. Um, in this moment. And so I don't know. And this movie came at a time where I, I really resonated with that. I mean, and the way that they, the story tells that is it talks about it through memory that, that Bar Barley has these three memories that he continues to share with his brother. But then you learn that there's this fourth memory and this fourth memory is that he didn't want to go and see his his, his dying father in a, in a room that was, um, where he was hooked up to tubes. And like I said at the top of the show, like I I remember the fear and the shame of not wanting to be in a hospital room with a dying brother. And like I just thought it nailed it. I thought it nailed that moment. Um, and I'm very grateful for the meaning that has that I've been able to make through a, a lot of therapy of <laughs> um, uh, good friends and vocational call and a lot of work. Um, but I, I wonder if you were to find people who had a sort of liberatory moment, how, how long do you think it takes before the change actually affects us? You know, I think in real life, it takes a long time in movie life. It, you sort of need to tell the story and show it instantaneous, but, um, but at the end of the day, as I reflect on my own life through this movie, I feel like it took me a long time to make meaning of this stuff, even after the liberatory moment of feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm still loved. This grief is mine. And, um, and there are, and God is still here. I, I don't know. I mean, what, what other parts of this movie, like theologically stood out to you as relevant for our conversation today? Well, I think there's a lot of Easter here that I, that I, that I want us to wrestle with. And maybe that's yeah. best done through the lens of some of the scripture passages that we'll get to. I mean, there's, I, you know, the scene that you mentioned when we discover that the fourth memory is about Barley's not as, as a kid, as a little kid, not wanting to go in and see his dad in a hospital room all tied up with tubes. I, I, I could not watch, watch that and think about it without immediately envisioning the thousands of people right now who cannot go see relatives, um, spouses, dads, moms in hospital rooms because of COVID-19. 
and just the 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 widespread devastation um, and grief and trauma specifically caused by that separation for cases of COVID-19, but also just for pregnant moms who can't have the dads in that room as they're giving birth and for anyone yeah. else who's in a hospital room and can't have family come and visit and the, the last moments that people can't be there for because of we're all stuck. Uh, and I, you know, I re read that David Kessler interview too, the Harvard Business Review piece that you mentioned, and I, I believe it entirely that like we are dealing with uh, a collective trauma response on a scale that is kind of heretofore unknown in mm -hmm. modern society, <laughs> and I'm I'm entirely of the opinion that like everything we do right now. That, that every little snipe and every ill word and th that nothing in our day-to-day -day lives is outside of that. Mm. Uh, and it, it feels overwhelming that there is, I think for me, some grace in it that says you, you don't have to do anything perfectly right now. The, the point is just to to ride the wave for a while and not get sucked under um, mm -hmm. and, and everything else, you know, there's no, there's no perfect parenting right now. There's no perfect working from home. There's no perfect homeschooling. There's no perfect way to be church. There's no perfect, any of that. We're just, we just got to survive a trauma wave. Um, and then we can start to do the long, long work of trying to put something back together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in that sense that, the, the that piece of the film really jumped to me because it spoke so urgently to right now. Um, there are some other things about this movie that that sort of amused me. I'm I'm, I'm amused by this genre of um, movies that are clearly video game movies. Yeah. That are not yeah. video game franchise movies. Um, you know, the, we're what 20 at least 20 years into trying to make movies based off of video game franchises and never a one of them has been any good uh, but we are beginning to see like video game logic show up as the defining plot structure of movies and as long as you don't call it name it after a major franchise then maybe it will be okay i mean clearly scott pilgrim is uh, like the, the for me kind of the watershed film here uh then the um edge of tomorrow uh, the um, Tom Cruise movie where he keeps I dying over and over and over. I love that movie. Um, I, I think, you know, some of the, sh certainly some of the animated and Disney stuff does this. The Onward is doing that a lot with, it's basically mm -hmm. a high fantasy quest giving movie with, in, in a kind of odd context. Um, Wreck-It Ralph clearly also d playing a lot with this. And, you know, and I'm not the first person to argue this, but one of our best picture shortlist folks from last year was 1917, the Sam Mendes one-shot World War One film that is, for my money, effectively a, a, a video game film that tells, it's, 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 it's a immersive first-person shooter set in World War One at a very slow pace, but all of its optics and all of its beats yeah. are... Are, are taken from first-person shooter script games. Um, so I, I would, I'm, I'm amused by that trend, um, but I'm not sure that there's great theological grist to be, to be milled from it. 
I mean, I think I I think just from a storytelling standpoint, my all of the n- movies that you named, I quite like, and I, the reason I like them is not because they're trying to take a video game and make it into a movie, which tends to work poorly. Um, but they have taken the ideas of video games and built story around them, yeah. so that and and that particular direction works better. And this movie included. It, it, it in many ways is is not just trying to make a video game. It is trying to recreate a sort of tabletop role playing game, which is having its a, a new season here. Um, right. I think in 2020, as people try and figure out what collaborative storytelling is like, how to gather and move away from screens into more um, more communal based play with each other, which I I quite enjoy. There are a number of good, I think, quite good podcasts about that are just people playing role playing games, <laughs> tabletop role playing games. Mm-hmm. I've listened to a couple of them, um, and uh, I I like them in part because of the ways in which they surprise you and they have some unexpected new ways to um, to tell a story collaboratively. I I think this this movie is sort of playing off of. Um, off of that also messing with with the idea of magic and how it um how it operates in a world and how we gather it um and make use of it and so um i i I think this movie has something to say about sort of the ways in which genre is played with not just from sort of the influence of video games but the influence of just gaming in general as you figure out how to how to tell someone how to work or how to play and in many ways Barley is not just the older brother who's taking his younger brother Ian on a quest. He's the game master who's trying to sort of teach Ian how the rules of the game work. You know, he's the in the ways that older brothers should be. They are he is introducing him to all of these things that he won't know because he's younger. And he's like, you know, I I distinctly remember my brother giving me records for the first time and saying, like, you need to listen to this. And. And that spirit is laden in this movie in a really positive way. And, and, and while also sort of borrowing from 1970s, like fantasy tropes, but also, as you noted, a really heavy influence of Jack Black on this movie. (laughs) Right. Jack Black should get some royalties from this. I believe that the van that, that Barley is driving around is like an animated version of the van that Jack Black's character drives around in school of rock. I mean, there's a, that there's a lot of, um, mid 2000s jack black permeating this movie i mean and i enjoy it it's fine by me but that that man should get some some bills right i I think the other other two characters that we haven't said much about is are are the mother and the manticore Mm -hmm. as two people who themselves find their way into identity by way of adventure um and i like that i like that theme i think it works pretty well here which is to say um the in, in the ways that most Pixar movies do this, they have a, a keen attention to detail in the ways in which um, they try and help. Well, they put this, the characters in situations to um, to find their most the, the the purest essence of themselves, or the sort of greatest sense of their identity, or sort of maximize their potential. And this is a common theme among Pixar movies, and. Um, and in this movie, the mother and the manticore have their own little adventure as they run after Barley and Ian. And in doing so, they come to understand themselves 
um, and, and recapture a piece of themselves that, that has been lost or domesticated at some point. And I, I think that that worked well, too. Um, I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is fantastic in all things all the time. Yeah. And so just hearing her voice is comforting to me. Yeah, and I like that they don't play her as kind of fun killer mom. You know, she, yeah. she she doesn't seem mad at the boys. She's not there to kind of rain on everybody's parade. She's not um, lifeless suburban mom. She's she's slightly more fully rendered than that. I I, I do think this movie, you know, is is not breaking some tropes that I kind of wish it would break. I mean, yeah. the, it, you know the. The, the this this story has been told in a lot of different ways um and i i guess part of me is just maybe aching for something that's a little bit more refined than you really just have to believe in yourself which <laughs> and, right. Right. Go um, on and, and there's no there's not a lot of new ground to be done in kind of young white boy looks for his dad i mean there it's poignant <laughs> and it resonates with me i mean i i'm used to be a young white boy and now i'm a what dad and it, it's there but you know i i also feel like there was some more original ways to get at this material that i think they could have tried that they didn't and that is sour a little bit for me yeah i mean that's fair I, there's funny like i read some of the promotional material of this movie and one of the things they say is like one of only three movies or uh, three Pixar movies that don't have humans. And I was like, what? Yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> That's no. Like, no. no. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to rule that out of bounds. <laughs> I know. Like they're Elvin. No, they read white and young and male. Yeah. Like this is, you let's, know, what let, you're, let, let's let's not let's not try too hard. No, 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 no. Come on. Come on. Come on. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It's not it's not breaking new new ground. But I mean, for me, it it, it met the it met the need. But let's talk about Easter. I mean, I think yeah, uh, I think that's that's where we we might unearth some new things that I think are worth considering in light of the resurrection. But before we do, let us just say that we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the work that they do. They have stepped up in this time, providing really smart resources for the church during social isolation. Uh, right now, Richard Lisher, who I, I've always enjoyed reading his stuff, um, quite an astute commentator on preaching in particular, has a smart article on our time of social distancing as prolonged as a prolonged Holy Saturday. Hmm. It's worth a read as we travel through Holy Week this year, so I commend it to you. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free, mag- uh, free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt. Preaching. The text for this upcoming lectionary uh, for Easter Sunday are from Acts or from Colossians or from Jeremiah. But really, come on. We have the resurrection accounts in Matthew and John. What are you thinking about as you read those passages and as you watch onward? Well, I'm trying to figure out if this is an Easter Sunday movie. I mean, in some ways, it absolutely is. It is about bringing Dad back from the dead, and and, and we should acknowledge that like there's resurrection in this film, to a very limited extent. Uh, and yet, I, I'm not sure whether this film lives squarely in the Easter Sunday texts. It clearly lives in the Easter Tide texts, and so yeah. I kind of want to give them their due for a minute here. 
because first of all, like any decent Western canon informed resurrection story, um, the resurrected body here is actually only barely present. Uh, just like in the gospel accounts, the resurrected Jesus doesn't linger around <laughs> anywhere. He's not really fully like the dude that they knew before. It's very wily. All the gospels differ broadly in the stories they tell about resurrected Jesus. He's not recognizable to his own friends. It's it's he's back sort of feels like the, the the language and the logic of these gospels which is clearly what happens in onward too first of all we get like he's back from the feet to the waist and then at the very end he's back but but only to barley only for a moment just in the the, the quickest fleeting time and everybody else gets to witness to the fact that resurrection has happened without actually getting to be part of it, which seems like a story that has a lot of legs as we look through the Doubting Thomas narratives and as we look through yep. the Road to Emmaus narratives and um, as, as we look through uh, even the, the Great Commission narrative. It's not about this like lengthy reconstitution of the previous relationship. It is this fleeting glimpse at the power of something. And also that what those Eastertide stories show is that the real power of resurrection is in creating and adjusting right relationships between the people who are still fully mm -hmm. normally alive. And this is what the beginning of Acts does so powerfully, right? Yep. Res resurrection alters the relationship between the disciples and between the disciples and the broad community of early Christians. And it puts those people in right relationship with one another, at least for a limited time only. And so, <laughs> yeah, for six chapters, right? Yeah. And, and and so that is what's so clearly on display here is that the resurrected power is to put Ian and Barley and Mom in right relationship with one another, uh, and even though Dad is only there for a heartbeat, and I, I think that's where this film really, oh God, I hate myself for saying this, has legs. Um, <laughs> Yes, but I, I, but I do have some pieces that I think could go with the actual John and Matthew texts. But I want to give you a whack at the ball first. Yeah. What 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 are you seeing when you look at the the specific gospel text for Easter Sunday that might jump out? Yeah, so I have I have two. I have one that's going to sort of be immediately born of the text, and then the other that just sort of broadly speaks about what what the resurrection provides that you find echoes of in Onward. The first um, from the text, I, the Matthew account says they take hold of his feet, which is a really interesting little moment. And it's not one that I've considered very often, but Onward sort of encouraged me to think about this in part because of the legs of, um, of the dad that sort of accompany the two kids on their, on their journey. Um, and I'm reminded that, you know, in, in the medieval church, there were these songs and generally sung during Holy Week about the body of Christ, right? That, um, Oh, Sacred Head Now Wounded is one that we have that has lasted, but that was a, a part of a canon of songs, um, often called the Membra Jesu Nostri, which is just to say, like, you sing songs about the various different parts, body parts of Christ. 
And generally that canon of singing starts with the feet. Um, and then it goes to the knees. Um, I, I wonder what it means to sort of consider why the disciples fell at the feet, not just sort of in a, um, not just sort of in a, a, a act of supplication or an act of adoration, but how do they how do they recognize Christ from his feet in in some of the same ways that Barley is able to sort of communicate with his dad through these this like tapping of feet, um, and what does it mean when we notice Christ by the feet? Uh, I think about this relationship in ET as well. Right, which is from um, what Spielberg does so well in ET is that he he shoots from the child's perspective from the very beginning, and so you only generally see adults from the like from the knees down, and um, and I wonder what it means for us to sort of try and enter Easter Sunday by starting with the feet and seeing um, Christ's feet approach us. Um, the other thing that this reminded me of um, is the great, uh, the 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 fabulous sermon by Frederick Buechner called "The Magnificent Defeat," that is ostensibly about Jacob wrestling the angel at the River Jabbok, but a little bit like this movie, the Jacob character is kind of a red herring before he starts talking about Christ in the last quarter of the sermon, and in that sermon, um, he starts talking about the ways in which Jacob was wounded in his wrestle with um, with the angel, but then turns to the sort of wounded Christ who walks brokenly um, out of the tomb. And um, and yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I wonder what it, what our preaching would sound like when we consider the, the broken feet of Christ as we consider what, what Easter means for us um, and what the resurrection costs to Christ as he moves um, into a, uh, or as he creates a world of reconciliation. So that's my text um, piece. What about you? What, what, what from the text sort of stands out to you? So there's a couple for me. I mean, there's one in the John reading where the, the disciples go in um, and the text says that, um, he, that the other disciple went in and he saw him believe for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And I'm, I'm very, very interested, and I'm certainly not uh, a, a biblical scholar and to this degree, but I'm always interested in the way that the gospel writers invoke Old Testament scripture um, and, and the way that they refer to scripture. I think we, 2,000 years later, tend to kind of flatten out the history of the development of scripture so mm. that it all feels like it comes from one time. But, of course, to the Gospel writers, the Old Testament scripture is itself a long-ago document that has been passed down uh, and transmitted and has some aura about it that may not feel exactly related to the day-to-day -day reality that they, in which they live, much the way that, in some ways, all of scripture feels that way to us. And I wonder whether there's a way of accessing that by talking about how Onward talks about magic, um, where magic used to be in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, and folks have 
sort of stopped using it and moved on from it. And they're all aware that it used to be there. It's not like when Ian first manifests his magical powers, like it's not like no one knows that this thing is out there. It's just left behind. And and I think there's a bit here where this disciple realizes that this thing that um that this thing from long ago still has power and life mm. and vitality. Um that I, I wonder if it's worth playing with. That what it what it flashes for me and I think the the best way of getting at that is not from onward, but it's from my favorite moment in The Force Awakens, where um where uh Ray and Finn first meet up with Han Solo on the Millennium Falcon and they and they have this moment of realizing, like, you mean it was all true? Like yeah. the force, the good side, the dark the, the dark side, all of it. And Han says, Yeah, it was it was all true. And it's this kind of it's it's not a resurrection of a person, it's a resurrection of a of a story and a mythos and a way of understanding and seeing the world and how it connects that has to that has to come present for the moment to cohere. Um the other thing I think about is just the power of storytelling itself. One of my favorite pieces in Matthew's resurrection account is that is is this earthquake. Um mm. and the earthquake that does not happen <laughs> when the resurrection happens. Yeah. Like none of these stories show the resurrection, right? Like that's none, none of them show Jesus rising from the dead. They show the aftermath. They show the discovery. They show the process of realizing this thing that has happened sometime in the middle of the night or in the early dawn. Uh, and when and in Matthew, when Mary and Mary Magdalene go to the tomb, this earthquake happens at the point of discovery, at the point when they can begin to tell the story about what they've seen uh it's it's and, and i think there's something powerful in that um just in the way that onward talks about the its own storytelling it begins yeah. with the voiceover from the dad that long ago the world was full of wonder it was adventurous it was exciting most of all there was magic and at the end we have ian taking up the mantle of being that storyteller that long ago the world was full of wonder. I mean, he he mm -hmm. he he recapitulates that same narration, and I wonder if there's a way of playing with um, that kind of storytelling as a, as a way of what the power of this resurrection moment, where that power, in some ways, can can live with us. Um, that's what I've got. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and it connects to the other thing that I was going to say just about the ways in which hope is stoked in Ian and in Barley as they sort of find some new bit of magic, right? Like they, they realize, oh, there is opportunity to be reconciled. There is opportunity for new relationship, if even for just a small amount of time. And this drives them in this hope, like sort of like propels them into this adventurous spirit. Um and as I think about that, I mean, Easter is about many things, um, but I would suggest that it is centrally about hope. Um, it's hope in the trustworthiness of God, who is the promiser of a future resurrection and a future reconciliation. It's a hope that we're not just beings unto death, that we're not just people who are bound to be tied to, you know, a hospital bed with tubes coming out of us. Um, it's hope that 
we might reunite with each other, that that which has been lost might be found. Um, but I think, and this is the the maybe the important part too, and the part that we'll need, the Easter spirit that we'll need going forward now, is that hope is also the engine for social change, that it makes that make sure that others are not severed from the good things of this world too soon as others have already been. Um, and that's this sort of impossible hope that presses us to travel and move and exit all of the small comforts and the normative expectations of this life into this sort of like moment of adventure because we like hold fast to hope. Um, and it's not us that leads hope into the world. It's actually like hope that leads us into the world. It pulls us. We don't pull it. It's like, you know, they have this dad on the leash the entire time, but sometimes the dad like pulls them around. And I think that that's more indicative of how hope like moves the church back into the world. And so I was thinking a lot about hope in this. I actually started, re I pulled out Moltmann's theology of hope in this and sort of, and which is, it's just so good. It was, it was such a meaningful text to me in seminary when I read that for the first time. Um, and I'm going to read two, two quotes from him because I think that they're really brilliant. Um, he says, hope alone is not call is called hope alone is to be called realistic because it alone takes seriously the possibility with which all reality is fraught. It does not take things as they happen or stand or to lie, but as progressing, moving things with possibility of change. Thus hopes and anticipations of the future are not a transfiguring glow superimposed upon a darkened existence, but are realistic ways of perceiving the scope of our real possibilities. That Jesus is real, end quote, that Jesus is resurrected actually opens up new possibilities and realistic ways of perceiving our, our world. And that that is a sort of like a monumental shift in the way that we can understand the world given to us by the Easter um, moment. And then another moment, he says, in, in its hope, love surveys the open possibilities of history. In love, hope brings all things into the light of the promises of God. Um, the relationship of the love, both of these two brothers, but also the love that they have for their father actually propels them into a hopeful existence that all things might be reconciled, that all things might be redeemed. And um, that's an Easter message that I need to hear at this moment as we sort of move, um, as we eventually will move from a place of stasis and being static in our homes uh, back as as we move into being a people who's like, who's filtering back into the world and having been changed by what we experienced, not just um, in this current trauma, but also by the resurrection and by the empty tomb. Beautiful, Adam. I love that. Thank you. I think it's time for our last segment. This one is called Postludes, and it's just another chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for this week? I have three, and they're all related. Um, you I get one. I'm sorry. <laughs> they're they're all, it's one and, and three. It's very Trinitarian. Um, the, I don't know about you, like right now, I have found myself deeply comforted by things of the past. Um, in part because I know I'm supposed to watch Tiger King and I watched some of it last night and it made me just in, kind of nervous. <laughs> like it didn't, I didn't find it comforting. And so I don't know about you, but I take a lot of comfort and nostalgic comfort, I'll admit but comfort from all of the stuff that I loved when I was about Ian's age, but in the time when I was 16 to 18, um, 
And so I watch a lot of old basketball games on NBA TV. And um, I have found myself sort of longing for my very first car, which was a, an old green Ford Ranger, which is like a small pickup truck. And I and I sort of wish that I had that to drive around in right now. And I listen almost exclusively to Weezer's Blue Album, which <laughs> feels a little weird. But um, I feel like now is the time where I'm giving myself grace not to have to consume new things. Um, but to comfort myself with the stuff that, um, that gives, that was comforting back when I felt like I was perhaps most anxious. And when I was 16 and anxious, an anxious 16 year old, the thing that, the thing that comforted me were old basketball games, driving around, listening to music in my green Ford Ranger, particularly Say It Ain't So by Weezer. And so, um, this is just my advice to people which is like go find old stuff that made you comfortable a long time ago i suspect that it'll probably make you comfortable again that's my post what about you man yeah i gotta say i mean I, I there's a lot of discourse out there right now about all the netflix people that are watching and all of the stuff that is getting consumed and in fact like netflix and hulu and various folks have been dialing back on their bandwidth allocations because so many people are breaking streaming services or breaking the internet by by just the sheer quantity of bandwidth that's getting pulled down. Uh, I am not in that same place uh, because I'm trying to balance um, homeschooling and working from home and um, being at home all at the same time while carrying the, the anxiety of all of this. So I, I'm watch, I'm consuming very, very little content right now. Yeah. Um, if, if I were consuming content, one option would be a kind of interesting new model that has popped up uh, with some vari a variety of independent uh, movie theater companies, um, including the Alamo Draft House based here in Austin, which have been setting up uh, so-called virtual cinemas, on online screenings of mostly very independent films um, that have, where the, the theaters and the distributors have set up an arrangement where you can buy a ticket to see the film through a home channel, through an online channel in your house, but you buy the ticket through the movie theater. And so the movie theater gets to recoup 50% of the profits. This obviously is not going to work for something like Onward. Disney doesn't need movie theaters to promote right. something like Onward, but it works for a bunch of other independent films that need those local theaters to program them in order to get the visibility they need to be... To, to, to be financially viable. Um, but it's, it's kind of made me think a little bit about what the function of a good movie theater is, mm -hmm. uh, especially in, in a time where nobody's actually going to them. It is almost as if that the theater itself was never about the food or the popcorn or the seats or the screen, but it was about a curation. Right. Um, and, and maybe not so much for the huge blockbustery Fast and the Furious things, but for these movies that are so many of them are so near and dear to me that I might not have experienced if it weren't for a theater or several theaters in, in consort deciding that this was something that people should see. And this was something that was worth them programming that the theater is functioning as a, as a content aggregator, um, more so than anything else. And, and I wonder whether that offers something to us in pastoral ministry, 
during a time where nobody can come fill our seats uh, and no, nobody can come be in that physical place and we are not passing offering plates down the pews and we are not handing out coffee and donuts or whatever it is. Uh, and yet the traction of pastoral leadership right now may be as curators um, to some degree as figuring mm-hmm. out what what are the messages and what are the the emotions and what are the homiletics and what are the theologies that my people need in this moment um, and, and that, that we all need to hear in this moment and do I have the trust and the insight and the grace and the presence of the spirit with me to try and um, navigate that and offer people something that can help them wade through it. Uh, and I, I, I'm kind of struck by that idea and I'm, I'm holding on to it. So that's what I've got. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. I was talking to Christy the other day and she was saying that this is really an interesting time in part because it is a reversion of what pastoral ministry once looked like, which is the expectation of the minister was not to run program, but to teach, to preach, and to do regular pastoral care, right? Those were the the large bulk of the ministry through most of Christian history. And in many ways, like trying to run program from our houses is impossible, right? Right. So the the bulk of our time is spent trying to figure out how do we create worship? How do we teach people from afar? And how do we regularly check in on people? And in, ma- in many ways, that's a sort of, that's not a, that's not a new model of doing ministry. That's actually quite old model of doing ministry. Right, good. Well, Adam, we've done it. We've successfully occupied another hour of people sitting in their homes, uh, waiting for all this to be done. Hopefully we've offered you something helpful. But that does about wrap it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Barley's Cheese Pub. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. 